Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. When a student is expelled from school, what guidelines are in place to help him or her to not fall behind in their studies? Surprisingly, not much, but a recent lawsuit has compelled the State Department of Education to come up with standards for school districts. Jacqueline Rabe Thomas, ctmirror.org's education reporter, will explain coming up. Also, legalized marijuana is coming soon to Massachusetts, while proponents in Connecticut are still pushing for legal pot here. But how will a move by U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions to rescind an Obama-era measure that protects legal production in states affect the billion-dollar industry? Jack Kramer with ctnewsjunkie.com will break it down for us, and we'll get an update from a reporter in Massachusetts about how soon residents there will be able to purchase pot legally. That conversation just ahead. But first, what's up with that extreme cold we've been experiencing? Sunday morning, much of the state woke up to double-digit temps in the negative. And yes, it's common to hear complaints about the weather here in Connecticut, but do you remember a winter season that started out this cold? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at wmpr.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now, this weekend, it was even too cold to ski with a few places in Vermont temporarily closing their slopes. Joining our conversation now is Ryan Hanrahan, chief meteorologist at NBC Connecticut. His blog is called On Ryan's Radar. Ryan, welcome back to the show. Good morning, Lucy. I have to say, when I left my house this morning, it was 19 degrees, and it actually felt pleasant. <laughs> it's amazing how we get used <laughs> to the cold, and now this feels like a big warm-up when it's 20 degrees in the morning. Uh, remind us how cold and why this is such a record. I, I was reading that uh, in Mount Washington, it was so cold Saturday morning, uh, the temperature there tied for the second coldest on Earth, according to the observatory there. Yeah, I mean, the cold was certainly very impressive yesterday morning. The temperature at Bradley International Airport made it down to 9 degrees below zero, uh, which shattered the old record for the day, which was 1 degree. So uh, the cold was was very, very impressive, um, and some towns were even colder than that. In fact, the coldest reports we got at NBC Connecticut were from East Granby and also East Hampton, where the actual temperature, not the wind chill, made it down to 17 degrees below zero yesterday morning. But the good news is we're starting to warm up a little bit. But over the last uh, week to 10 days, it has been a uh, very long-duration stretch of uh, cold temperatures. I asked our listeners if they can remember uh, a winter uh, this early being so cold. Uh, We tend to be forgetful, as you know, and, and complain about the weather. But as a meteorologist, you're looking at trends. When's the last time it's been this cold? Well, we had um, around Valentine's Day of 2016, so two winters ago, uh, we had two mornings in a row where the temperature made it down to 12 degrees below zero at Bradley Airport. So we have had cold like this uh, recently. It wasn't necessarily this early in the winter, um, but two winters ago, there was a stretch where it did get very, very cold. And February 2015 was also the coldest month on record um, at Bradley International Airport. Uh, so in the last three winters, we've had stretches of uh, very impressive colds that sort of come and go, and they're sort of interspersed with thaws. But um, over the last few years, there have been some stretches of very cold weather, just like this one. Any connections between uh, the temperatures we're experiencing and that storm we had last week? 
Well, yeah, the storm we had last week uh, that dropped nearly a foot of snow in parts of Connecticut did sort of make the cold this weekend a bit worse. As the storm moved up into the Canadian Maritimes, we had a very strong northerly wind. You get a counterclockwise flow around a storm, around low pressure. So the northerly winds picked up. It dragged some colder air down from Quebec and Ontario. And so the combination of the wind and the cold coming down from the south really made things brutal with wind chills that in some towns were as low as 20 degrees below zero during the day on Saturday. Well, we've been hearing uh, the term bomb cyclone. We've heard some people call this last storm a winter hurricane. Explain to us exactly uh, how you would define this past storm. So there is such a term as a bomb cyclone, believe it or not. Some people thought it was just made up, but it actually is something we see a lot. So a meteorological bomb is just a way that we describe how st- strong a storm, or how quickly a storm strengthens. So if you have a barometer and you're sitting at the center of a storm and you follow the storm along for 24 hours, if that barometer drops 24 millibars in 24 hours, it's described as a bomb. And basically what that signifies is a storm that's strengthening very, very rapidly. What this one did is it strengthened even more rapidly than that. In fact, it strengthened about 50 millibars in 24 hours. So the rate of strengthening was very unusual for a storm. Uh, But here on land, it sort of just acted like a normal old nor'easter for us here in Connecticut, where we had some wind and we had about a foot of snow. Uh, So it wasn't overly remarkable, although it did produce quite a bit of coastal flooding out to the east of us in Massachusetts. And also what was interesting is we were seeing uh, people down in Florida and South Carolina uh, dealing with snow. Uh, it was all part of the same system. Same storm. And in fact, I can't remember the last time we've had a snowstorm impact Connecticut where two days before we were watching video from oil rigs off of uh, Louisiana, the Gulf of Mexico, where there was snow flying. So there was a lot of cold very far to the south. And sometimes the a difference between the very cold air that's coming down over the United States and the very warm water off of the uh, in the Atlantic Ocean and the Gulf Stream, that temperature contrast can help strengthen these storms. Uh, so, so there is certainly something to be said about the very cold air that was over the eastern U.S. and the very warm ocean waters sort of combining to create this bomb cyclone. This is where we live today. We're talking about the frigid weather we've been having lately. And on the phone with me, NBC Chief Meteorologist Ryan Hanrahan. Now, that storm uh, last week that uh, dropped almost uh, more than a foot of snow in some towns caused flooding in the streets of Boston and in several Cape Cod towns. You probably saw a video of that flooding on social media. Joining us now is he- Dr. Heather Goldstone. She's a science editor at WCAI. It's an NPR station in the Cape and Islands. She's also host of Living Lab Radio. Heather, welcome to the show. Good to be with you. So how remarkable was this storm up in Massachusetts? It was really quite remarkable, and and not so much for the storm itself, which, uh, to echo Ryan's sentiment, uh, felt pretty much like a nor'easter in terms of, you know, high winds and snow in some areas. Uh, But the flooding, I think, really took a lot of people by surprise. Uh, I was actually looking back, the Boston Globe, uh, in one of their uh, weather blogs, had said before the storm, you know, expect minor to moderate flooding. It just was kind of in passing with much more focus on the snow and the wind. Um, And in fact, it was that flooding that ended up being really the story in Boston, historic flooding that uh, broke a record set in 1978 uh, for the highest water level. I mean, broke that record by like 0.06 of an inch. So it was pretty close, but still uh, the first time in a very long time that people had seen things like Long Wharf and the Seaport District underwater in Boston. And here on the Cape, where 
Coastal flooding and erosion are a, a pretty common part of nor'easters for certain parts of the Cape. We certainly saw that. Uh, we expected it on Nantucket, but to see uh, downtown Provincetown, Commercial Street, which many people may know, kind of the main drag in Provincetown, to see that underwater, um, you know, a couple miles inland in, in some cases, it was really quite surprising to a lot of people just how widespread and how bad the flooding was. Where are you exactly on the Cape, Heather? What did you see? Well, so I, uh, I, I work in Woods Hole and uh, live several miles from there. And where I was uh, at home for most of the day and in Woods Hole, it was kind of a non-event. Yes, it was windy. We had, uh, you know, that classic New England wintry mix flying around, not much stuck. Um, so it didn't seem like a lot here. It was really on those uh, north and east facing coastlines uh, that we really saw those flood impacts. And so it was in the afternoon at the high tide, which was around one o'clock in the afternoon, uh, that we started seeing videos from Facebook, from Martha's Vineyard, from Nantucket, from Provincetown, from Orleans, um, you know, and then all the the east facing coast of Massachusetts all the way up to the North Shore, uh, just seeing this really, uh, you know, can't say unprecedented, but flooding that hasn't been seen in decades in a lot of these places. Ryan, the high tide, we can thank that to the supermoon that was also uh, last week. Yeah, we can. The storm was sort of a, a freak storm in that the absolute worst of the wind and the storm surge completely coincided with one of the highest tides of the year because of the supermoon. Uh, so already without a storm nearby, uh, we would have seen some minor coastal flooding on the coast of uh, eastern Massachusetts, Cape Cod Bay, up to the south shore of Boston, even up north. Uh, but then you threw in the, the storm that was offshore and you had you know 50 mile per hour wind gusts. You had the peak surge uh, coincide with one of the highest tides of the year. So it was sort of a freak occurrence, and uh, it was pretty remarkable to see those pictures um, that, that we saw out of portions of uh, Boston, even down to the Cape. I mean, I saw the same pictures and video from Provincetown, and to see the water just running through Commercial Street uh, like that, that was something that hasn't been seen in quite some time. Now, Heather, with the, the flooding waters, because it's been so cold, what kind of damage is the Cape seeing now with some of that water freezing up? Right. Well, so th that was one of the things we got warned about Thursday into Friday was the potential that floodwaters might be uh, slow to recede and could actually freeze. Um, one of the most notable things we've seen with the, the seesawing temperatures, you know, from really cold to kind of warming up, actually, during the storm, th something's actually thawing and flooding. And then that dramatic temperature drop again is Nantucket's main sewer line actually burst. And as of this morning, I think we're at about two and a half million gallons of stormwater and raw sewage that's gone into Nantucket Harbor as a mm -hmm. result of that break. They're working on getting that under control. Uh, but, you know, we have seen some damages that I think we don't usually see um, in terms of erosion, which is what we would usually expect with these kinds of storms and a lot of the nor'easters. Um, certain parts of Cape Cod Bay's shoreline may actually have caught a break because of all of the sea ice and slush that was sitting on top of Cape Cod Bay. One coastal geologist I spoke to said that in the places where there was a lot of sea ice and slush on the water, he could see, you know, five foot waves out in the bay and they would be barely a foot on shore. Um, and so that may have actually cut down on some of the erosion that we saw. But then on the flip side, we saw a lot more flooding than we're used to.
Dr. Heather Goldstone's with us from the studios of WCAI. She's a science editor uh, at WCAI, also host of the show Living Lab Radio. On the phone with us, uh, Ryan Hanrahan, chief meteorologist at NBC uh, 30 in Connecticut, as we talk about uh, the latest weather. Um, now, I was curious, too, uh, Ryan, one of the reasons we like you so much is how active you are on Twitter. And when we saw this long stretch of cold weather, we see some skeptics of climate change saying this is, this points to the climate uh, change uh, not being a big issue. I'm curious how, how you've been able to respond to that. Well, I mean, I, I think a lot of times you, you see climate change skeptics will point to, well, look at how cold it is right now. You know, clearly there's no global warming, but you can't look at any specific week or in one specific location and attribute that to climate change. We know that warmer winters and stretches of unusually uh, warm weather are becoming more and more common. But we're sort of, you know, that, that does not mean you can't get cold weather. In fact, it's still winter, so it should get cold. So while we're loading the dice toward warmer winters and stretches where we're getting these very long thaws, you can, on the opposite side, still see some stretches of very cold weather. So, you know, there's a big difference between weather and climate, and that's part of what we try to explain to our viewers. And I try to explain on social media that weather and climate are two very different things. They're intertwined in many ways, but you can't look at one specific event and say, oh, this was or was not, or, you know, this disproves global warming because, well, it's cold out here right now. It's winter. (laughs) And when you look at other parts of the world still experiencing extreme heat. Yes, I think Sydney, Australia made it to about 118 degrees yesterday, one of their hottest days on record. Um, And we're seeing huge swaths of the globe from Europe through Asia, most of Russia, um, and then down into Africa and South America, where they're looking at uh, well above normal temperatures right now. So a lot of times what we'll see is when one area, like here in New England, in the northeast and the eastern half of the country gets very cold, on the other side of the country, parts of Alaska and western North America are extremely warm, some of the warmest temperatures on record in Alaska. So uh, it's, we are sort of unlucky if you don't like the cold um, right now, but there's many parts of the world who are looking at the exact opposite of what we're getting. Uh, Heather, over uh, uh, in the Cape, uh, when you look at global climate change, uh, one of the impacts being sea level rise, do you have any doubts that some of that last week's flooding uh, that, that was seen along the coast in Massachusetts is related? Well, first of all, on the, the, the note to follow on what Ryan was saying about the cold temperatures, there's it's not settled science, but there's some science suggesting that, in fact, the disproportionately fast warming in the Arctic, the, fast, the fact that the Arctic is warming twice as fast as the rest of the globe, may actually be related to some of our cold spells because of the changes that take place in the circulation around the Arctic and that letting it kind of spill, that cold air spill down on top of us. So... So there is that. And then in terms of sea level rise, I mean, to say that this flooding was caused by, you know, sea level rise, no. But um, it's the background on which all of these events now happen. Sea level is now almost a foot higher than it was a century ago. So if this same storm had happened a century ago, obviously a foot less water um, at that time and perhaps gives us a little bit of peek into the future. I mean, storm surge does behave differently than just sea level rise would. But we had a three foot storm surge and even uh, moderate conservative uh, predictions at this point say we're likely to see at least three feet of sea level rise by the end of this century. So think about the places that were underwater at the end of last week. And um, this is a much uh, 
more uh, vivid wake-up call than any map or graphic could ever be about what places might be underwater with three feet of sea level rise along the coast of Massachusetts. Uh, given what you said, Heather, uh, obviously a lot of people love to vacation in the Cape and have their uh, their beach homes. Uh, does it change? Do you think this continues to change people's perspectives on where they live and where they uh, build? You know, I, I do think it is starting to, uh, for some people, it's it's not uh, front of mind for a lot of people that you talk to. But I think increasingly homeowners are realizing um, that, that this isn't just a one-off. We're not going back to some previous uh, version of life along the coasts and that we're going to have to start dealing with that. I mean, in Situate, one very vulnerable town, the seawall actually caved in a place. And as I said, they're looking at having to, you know, perhaps uh, upgrade portions of that uh, to account for the fact that storms are are just going to be getting stronger and sea level is going to be rising. That has a lot of costs that come along with it, and that can be really uh, hard for, for towns to you know find that money for it. But I think the realization that we, we are going to have to be doing some things differently going forward, and you know I won't be around to see that uh, three feet at the end of the century, but my kids might. And maybe by that time, we will be looking at a situation in Boston where there's actually, uh, you know, a storm wall outside Boston Harbor, an idea that has been proposed that we close uh, for full moons, these astronomical high tides, and for storms coming in to try to protect some of downtown. Or perhaps it will be modifications to, you know, waterfront areas and, and other vulnerable areas. But, but definitely, I think people starting to realize we're going to have to make some changes. Dr. Heather Goldstone is a science editor at WCAI on the Cape, host of Living Lab Radio. She joined us from the studios of WCAI today. And, uh, Heather, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Also, Ryan Hanrahan on the phone with us, chief meteorologist at NBC Connecticut. His blog is called On Ryan's Radar. And just to recap, Ryan, you said warmer temperatures just ahead this week? Yeah, it looks like it. Temperatures in the 30s by tomorrow. It's going to feel really nice. And maybe by Friday, we're up to 50. Well, that's uh, will sound like a, a welcome change after uh, this past uh, weekend. Thank it you, sure Ryan. <laughs> we appreciate it. Thanks, Lucy. Stay warm. Coming up, um, this is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. This summer, consumers can purchase marijuana legally in Massachusetts, but will a federal policy change impact that timeline? We're going to find out after the break, and we want you to weigh in, too. What do you think? Should Connecticut lawmakers here in the upcoming session legalize pot in Connecticut? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. This summer, Massachusetts is expected to begin allowing the sale of recreational marijuana, the seventh state to do so since 2012. Washington State and Colorado were the first. Now, where does Connecticut stand on the issue? Any movement expected this legislative session? We'll get to that in just a bit. But first, a policy change within the U.S. Department of Justice may have complicated a growing billion-dollar industry. To explain, joining me now in studio is Jack Kramer, a reporter for ctnewsjunkie.com. Jack, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So give us an idea um, for people who have not been following what the DOJ has been doing related to recreational marijuana. What did Attorney General Jeff Sessions announce last week? Well, in Lehman's terms, what he basically did is he put the responsibility back on the feds to regulate marijuana versus states. And as far as um, he did it three days after the biggest state in the country um, legalized uh, recreational marijuana. So I think those who have um, 
tried to figure out where this ruling came from. I think that's a fairly obvious reason. Um, the Trump administration trying to make a statement about where they feel this, the country is going as far as um, recreational marijuana and possibly sending a little bit of a message to states like Connecticut who might be considering it going forward. Now, explain how the federal government defines marijuana. Well, I, I think basically they define it um, as an illegal drug. And there's, uh, on the Obama administration, there was regulations passed which put the responsibility on, back on the states to make their own determination as to whether or not it was legal or not. And as you said, um, several states, starting with Colorado and Washington, and um, more recently, obviously three or four days ago, California, and um, in our area of the country, Massachusetts and Maine, um, decided to take that responsibility and legalize it. And Connecticut's been talking about it. Um, and I, I think what's interesting about the Sessions ruling is, as far as I can tell in doing my own research and having written a lot about this the last couple of years, is it kind of came out of left field. Uh, people weren't expecting it. Um, so it's, it's still kind of being sifted through to see exactly what's going on here. But it certainly, um, it's gotten a lot of attention the last few days. So uh, with uh, Sessions revoking this uh, policy that was under the Obama administration, it'll be up uh, case by case to uh, states, uh, U.S. attorneys, whether they're going to prosecute or go after certain cases involving marijuana trafficking and whatnot? Well, I, I think that's the, the interesting thing about Sessions' ruling is I don't think anybody really knows what's coming next. Um, I think he left it open um, for... The next step, I, and I think what I've read over the last few days is that this was more a message being sent to those who were considering going forward, like Connecticut, um, and not so much to try to go after states that have already legalized, although you never know. Um, as I looked at the, the states that have legalized it, almost without exception, there are states that I would classify as um, red states, um, not states that... Trump administrations are fans of. So, um, and, and it makes sense that most of the states that have legalized marijuana would be more liberal um, states such as Massachusetts. Um, so I, I think as to what the ruling really means as far as going forward, it's to be determined. Now, last August, Massachusetts voters approved the sale of recreational pot. To get an update on that timeline, joining us by phone, Shira Schoenberg, political reporter for the Springfield Republican and MassLive.com. Shira, welcome to where we live. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. So when are sales supposed to start in Massachusetts? So where we're at now is possessing marijuana or consuming marijuana is legal, but you can't buy it legally. So the state is currently in the process of putting together the rules for legal marijuana sales, and sales are expected to start probably this July. Uh, now with this uh, decision by uh, Jeff Sessions, what are officials in Massachusetts saying? So officials in Massachusetts right now are saying they're going to continue um, continue the work that they're doing. I mean, we have the Cannabis Control Commission, which is this brand new oversight body of the marijuana industry, and they put out a statement last week saying, you know, we're going to keep working, we're going to keep developing our regulations, um, we're going to, you know, basically keep implementing the will of the voters. I understand the licensing period begins in April. Uh, prospective businesses, are they fearful of the federal government possibly cracking down on them or whether a bank will accept them as a customer? 
Yeah, I mean, that's really the big question now is that um, Attorney General Sessions' decision just creates this additional layer of uncertainty. Um, You know, under the Obama era regulations, businesses knew, you know, okay, I could come to a state where marijuana is legal and the federal government will probably not prosecute me. Um, This just adds a whole other layer of risk. Um, And a particular issue, as you mentioned, is the banking. Um, Banks that are federally chartered or even some that are state chartered but have to adhere to certain federal regulations may be a lot more wary of taking marijuana money now because they don't know if the federal government might crack down on them and might seize some of those assets. Now, uh, the governor of Massachusetts is a Republican. What's his take? So Governor Charlie Baker was actually an opponent of legalizing marijuana um, when it was on the ballot. He came out very strongly against that. But um, after Attorney General Sessions' statement, uh, Governor Baker said that he thinks that that was the wrong decision and that he wants to um, go forward with implementing the will of the voters. Um, You know, he said he's supportive of the will of the voters and the mission of this new regulatory body. Um, And he thinks that Attorney General Sessions' decision was wrong. This is where we live. On the phone with me, Shira Schoenberg, political reporter for the Springfield Republican and MassLive.com, as we talk about uh, plans for Massachusetts to allow uh, people to begin buying recreational marijuana uh, this summer. Uh, Also in studio with me, Jack Kramer, reporter for CTNewsJunkie.com. We're talking a little bit about what, if any, impact uh, a a policy um, being revoked by U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions on uh, how uh, U.S. attorneys around the state should handle uh, marijuana. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Now, there's also the U.S. attorney in Massachusetts, Andrew Lelling. Uh, Tell us about the statement he put out specifically and and how um, they are going to respond with Sessions' order, Shira. So it was actually a little bit ambiguous. Um, And I will tell you, just this morning, the group of pro-marijuana advocates that has been pushing the ballot question and the policy um, came out with their own statement asking um, Attorney Welling for more clarity. Um, because the statement that he made kind of highlights the fact that marijuana is a dangerous drug, is federally illegal. But then he said, and this I think is the key line, that his office will aggressively investigate and prosecute bulk cultivation and trafficking cases and those who use the federal banking system illegally. So that appears to say that he's going to focus on kind of high-priority criminal-related cases as opposed to just people using or using marijuana or running a marijuana business. Um, but I think that comment about the federal banking system may make some businesses very wary um, because if he does crack down on any marijuana business that uses the federal banking system, that could just make things a lot harder for these businesses. Uh, So as we mentioned, in April, the licensing period starts uh, for those who want to sell uh, recreational marijuana in Massachusetts. Shira, what are the guidelines on who's going to be able to actually buy it? Is it only uh, mass residents, or is it going to be people crossing the border uh, to get a legal pot there? No, I mean, the guidelines basically say any adults over age 21. um, There's no residency requirements for purchasing. So in theory, yes, people can come over from Connecticut. Um, and buy buy, um, marijuana in Massachusetts. There's actually some talk now about what kind of tourism industry might develop from the marijuana industry. I mean, will you have marijuana tourists coming from Connecticut or from other parts of the country? Mm. 
Now, I mentioned in studio with us as reporter Jack Kramer for ctnewsjunkie.com. Uh, the last few years, there have been legislators that have brought up uh, recreational marijuana here in Connecticut. Uh, now that Massachusetts is uh, uh, going forward, uh, what's going to happen? And do you think this is going to be a, an issue that comes up again this session, Jack? Oh, it'll definitely come up again. And it um, when it came up last year, the fact that um, like Shira said, that Connecticut people can just drive across the border and buy pot and pay taxes in Massachusetts when Connecticut is broke um, was certainly a big part of the conversation last year. Um, and it will certainly will be a big part of the conversation this year. Um, Maine, as I said, also has um, legalized, although I don't think they have a start date yet. And I believe the next date that near us that's going to jump on board is Rhode Island. What about Vermont? Um, and Yes, I'm sorry. Um, so I think I think certainly will, there are already bills that have been introduced for the upcoming general session that certainly will be discussed and certainly the fact that money will be spent across the border um, by Connecticut residents in a state that badly needs the money will certainly be part of that discussion. When we're talking about the money, uh, the state office of fiscal analysis determined that recreational marijuana could bring in anywhere from $45 million to $104 million a year. Uh, Shira, in Massachusetts, are they expecting similar numbers? Um, they are. I mean, I think the current state estimates are for next fiscal year, uh, marijuana could bring in between $44 million and $82 million. But that's just the first year of the industry before it ramps up. Um, I think in future years, you're actually going to see a lot higher numbers once um, the industry is at full strength. And just remember on this, um, you have a tax rate of potentially as high as 20 percent um, on marijuana. So the state, as well as cities and towns, um, are definitely going to see some real revenue from this. What do you think? Should Connecticut uh, bring recreational bot here? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Um, who are the main voices, Jack, in Connecticut uh, of politicians who are for and against this? Well, it's, it's interesting because it's, it's not just traditional liberal Democrats that are pushing it. There's um, um, there's Melissa Zeobrun um, from East Haddam is a strong advocate. Um, there are, you know, the majority are um, Democrats that are, are pushing it. Um, but there are also not just conservative Republicans that are opposed. There's, uh, I've been at meetings where there are what you might call liberal or moderate Democrats um, that, that are struggling with this issue or are opposed with this issue. Connecticut, I'm not sure if Massachusetts has the same kind of numbers that Connecticut has, but Connecticut, as you probably know, is dealing with this opioid epidemic. And um, whatever I, meeting I cover about uh, marijuana legalization, opioids come up. And, because people see marijuana as a gateway drug. Right. And again, every meeting I cover on this, it's amazing how both sides can trot out their experts that either push that agenda and say it's it's true that it, it's an, it is a gateway drug, or the other side will come out and, and have their experts saying it absolutely is not. But there certainly is a stigma involved, um, or seems to be, um, that that the proponents have not been able to beat back in Connecticut. It is interesting. Uh, we've, when we talked about this in the past, uh, you know, marijuana is not something that is causing uh, this crisis of uh, people dying from overdoses. It's opioids. Yes. And, and I, I again, I, I think it's um, it's really... A stigma. It's a you know Connecticut um, is a. I, I called it when I had a conversation. I think with your producer last week when we talked about doing this show, land of steady habits. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, in some ways, 
this conversation would probably would not even be happening in, in Connecticut if we didn't need the money so badly. Um, if, if everything was running great budget-wise, I don't think you'd ever even see Connecticut be talking about marijuana. Um, but, but it's still one of the big proponents is a legislator from Hamden, Josh Elliott, and in a story I did last week, he said it's not going to get passed. Um, and he's one of the biggest proponents. And he said it's just not going to get passed. Mm. Now, uh, in Massachusetts, voters approved uh, allowing recreational marijuana uh, there. But in Connecticut, this is something that, that the legislature would have to approve first? Yeah, I, I think in Massachusetts, if I have it right, sure, it was put on the ballot and, and, and approved in the last, um, last election, last November. Um, yes. But in Connecticut, I, although I think they, they could go that way, at least currently, for it to be approved, um, it would have to be a vote of the General Assembly. Now, uh, Governor Dana Malloy has also been opposed to recreational marijuana, but we've got a big governor's race coming up. Uh, what are candidates saying, Jack? You know, I, I think that's an issue that honestly um, hasn't been talked a lot about yet. I think as the General Assembly session opens in a few weeks, we have a, a lame duck governor. Um, and I think as we get into the, uh, into the session and get closer to November, I think candidates are going to get pressed on this issue. I don't think uh, honestly, they've been pressed on it. Um, perhaps they should have been <laughs> sooner, but there's so many of them right now. I think we have about two dozen candidates that have talked about running for governor. Um, we're just sorting through them all right now. But I think that will become an issue, and where they stand is something that's going to need to be talked about in the coming months. Now, uh, Shira, obviously these discussions were going on in Massachusetts as well. Um, how did it get to the point where you know voters decided that this is something that they wanted, uh, that they'd be able to reconcile the issues on both sides? Sure. I mean, everything that Jack just talked about, we had that exact same conversation in 2016. And unfortunately, Massachusetts's opioid epidemic is just as bad, if not worse, than Connecticut's. Um, but I think what really happened was, unlike in Connecticut, where you actually have legislators who need to take a vote and then be accountable to the public, we had a secret ballot election. I mean, it was a referendum on the ballot. Um, you know, you heard, you actually had very strong lobbies on both sides. I mean, you had the National Marijuana Policy Project was organizing this um, pro-marijuana campaign, which they've done in multiple states. You had the governor, the state attorney general, a lot of state officials, you know, opposing it. Um, but ultimately, I mean, I think, especially among younger voters, um, it's an issue that, you know, a lot of people are are in favor of it. Um, and, you know, we didn't have... I don't think the legislature would have passed legalized marijuana, um, but once it went to the voters, the voters decided, you know, 53% to 46% that they were comfortable with this and they wanted adults to be able to smoke recreationally. We're going to take some calls, and you can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Colin's calling from Guilford. Colin, go ahead with your question or comment. Hi, I'm just uh, concerned here in the state of Connecticut because as we look at legalization, uh, of course, over the border in Massachusetts, uh, we have patients here in the state of Connecticut, something around the number of 22,000 registered patients currently. Uh, and a couple of things. First of all, in the state of Connecticut, the marijuana that is currently being sold is not taxed. Uh, there are four producers producing marijuana, and that marijuana is not being taxed. I'm not sure if our lawmakers are aware of any of that. Uh, also, if, with legalization in the state of Connecticut, all these other states that have gone legal, they allow their, uh, their residents to grow marijuana. Uh, any of the other medical states that have programs where you can be a registered patient, 
which, of course, Jeff Sessions is now challenging the, I think it was coal memorandum, the registered patients are allowed to grow marijuana. Here in the state of Connecticut, patients are unable to grow marijuana as well. We are allowed to grow marijuana in Rhode Island as a Connecticut registered patient, which is very strange. My concern is that with Connecticut, if Connecticut happens to go legal, uh, any of these registered patients with only four producers are going to, the registered patients are going to be left out with no product because quite honestly, as a, I mean, I'm a businessman. I know how to make money. If somebody is going to give me more money for my pen in my right hand and I have the same pen in my left hand, but I'm going to get less money for the pen in my left hand, well, I tell you what, I'm going to put my pen in my left hand right into my right hand because oh. my right hand is getting more money and I don't care about patients because mm. the healthcare industry is broken. Colin, good points. I want to uh, pose that to our in-studio guest, uh, Jack Kramer, reporter for ctnewsjunkie.com, um, how this would impact the, the medical marijuana program here in the state. Well, I think a couple points to caller who makes good points brings up. If recreational marijuana was approved in Connecticut, I don't think it would be approved without some adjustments to the medical marijuana program. Um, that's the first thing I would say. Um, secondly, and, and the caller is very well versed, perhaps better than I am, in, in how the medical marijuana program runs, but I do know that there are um, extensive fees involved yes that the growers and the dispensaries pay the state that I don't know if they, they offset the tax um, that would be brought in, but going, getting back to my original point, I can't imagine that if the Connecticut ever did approve a recreational marijuana program, there wouldn't be some look or adjustment to the medical, uh, I'm sorry, recreational program, there wouldn't be some adjustment to the medical uh, program to make sure that a program that frankly runs very well from the state's end, um, I'm not sure from the user's end, um, wouldn't, would still, wouldn't still be successful. Uh, and the people that are in the medical marijuana program are paying a, a fee, a yearly fee, to be able to have a card to buy? I think, I, again, I'm, and I don't want to say something I'm not 100% sure of, but I believe it works through their insurance. Um, and and I, think, I think the fees that, the, that come in are more associated with what the dispensaries that are located in the cities and the growers pay, not not so much the patients. I think that's works works through their insurance, I believe. I want to take another call before we head to break. Uh, Gary from Madison. Gary, we have oh. Gary, are you there? No, Gary is not there. Um, before we head to break, Jack, uh, we're, since we're talking about the medical marijuana program, uh, meanwhile there are plans to have uh, more dispensaries. Yes, I mean the, the the medical marijuana program is growing at such a rate. I think it's. 22,000 patients and growing um, that the state last week uh, said they would take applications for three more dispensaries. Right now there are nine that are operating. Um, and the um, what I did want to mention, and um, those who are concerned uh, about how Sessions ruling might impact medical, medical marijuana, th there are 29 states that have medical marijuana programs. Um, and general consensus is that is not the target of this this ruling. Um, it, I mean, again, it could be. Uh, Shiro's point about the banking and, and, you know, we'll have to wait and see. But the feeling that I've, at least that I've, the stories that I've read since this ruling came down is that the medical marijuana programs are not the ones that are being targeted here. Jack, if I could actually add to that, I believe that you're correct and that there's 
also a congressional amendment, uh, the Rohrabacher Amendment, that actually protects medical marijuana programs. By Congress has said that the Department of Justice cannot spend federal money to crack down on medical marijuana programs yeah. in states where it's legal. Yeah, sure. I think you're right, and I believe that amendment needs to be renewed by Congress, if I have the date right, by January 19th. Um, so it'll be interesting because, as I said, there are 29 states, including many red states, that have medical marijuana programs. So I believe that uh, I believe a vote needs to be taken to um, to to forward the program, and then um, th there is that amendment that's that's in place. I will we'll have to leave it there. I want to thank Jack Kramer, reporter for CTNewsJunkie.com. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. Also, Shira Schoenberg, political reporter for the Springfield Republican and MassLive.com. And I have a film where this is not the last time we'll be talking about this. So we may be speaking to both of you again. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. Thank you. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathangel. After the break, we get an update on what happens to students who've been expelled. Are new standards on alternative education plans being braced by school district? Jackie Rabe Thomas with CTMirror.org will be here to answer that question and others coming up. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Coming up tomorrow, how do you train a new generation of doctors in the midst of a devastating civil war? We're going to hear how medical students living inside Syria are being trained remotely. There's a Connecticut connection. We're going to talk about that tomorrow. Now, when kids have been expelled from a Connecticut public school, what happens to them? Do they have an opportunity to enroll in alternative education to continue their studies? And how do school districts follow up with that particular student? Joining us to answer those questions and more is Jacqueline Rabe Thomas, an education reporter for ctmirror.org. Jackie, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So what? Um, do, tell us about the state law dealing with what happens to expelled students um, and what are some of the changes happening now? Sure. So state law for some time has required that students be provided with an alternative educational opportunity, but it's been silent on what exactly that means. So that's been left up to local districts to say, you know, we'll send them home with some homework and, and he'll report back or she'll report back or we'll give them a tutor for, you know, an hour or two a week. Well, the state decided the state through state law and through a pending lawsuit sort of pushed oh, their hand. <laughs> yeah. Sort of pushed their hand to say, you know, we need to define that, what exactly an educational opportunity is. And so last week the State Board of Education defined what that educational opportunity must be for expelled students. Each year that's about or last year rather, that was about seven hundred and fifty students throughout the state. And so what that means is students when they're expelled will be expected to get a full-time education. Now, there are some exceptions that will be allowed if if there is not an appropriate alternative educational opportunity available as it gets prepared. or But there'll have to be a plan that's written up for the students. So it'll have to be written of, here's what we're providing. Here's our game plan to make sure the student stays on track or gets back on track and is able to transition back into school. So if a student is expelled, there are, there are providers that um, offer up an alternative education. Now you're saying that the State Department of Ed has uh, clarified there's particular guidelines, a plan that needs to be in place for this student as they move forward in that program? Right. So currently there are 25 educational programs that offer an education just to expelled students. But then there's these other programs for alternative education programs where other students who, you know, just need different hours than the traditional school day offers their, you know, 
bullying issues, all these other issues where students might be in expelled programs. And so there are standards for those expelled program or for those alternative programs. You know, they must follow, you know, sort of guidelines of similar curricula that the district follows or similar, you know, staffing requirements. They have to be certified teachers, those sort of things to make sure there's some you know, quality benchmarks in there. And uh, certain school districts have more students expelled than others now with these guidelines. Any pushback from districts? Right. So, like I said, there are 750 students last year who were expelled. And generally speaking, expulsions are down. If you talk about, like, New Haven, it went from, you know, five years ago having 86 students expelled to last school year 17, so an 80% drop. You know, Hartford, Norwalk, Waterbury all have seen substantial decreases. But then you have places like Bridgeport, whose expulsion numbers have gone up 76% to they you know 51 to 90 so you're not talking about small numbers of students in some of these districts you know 90 students in Bridgeport needing to be accommodated with a full-time education alternative is sort of the expectation now of course you're going to have some pushback mm-hmm. there's you know it, it's going to cost money is is you know to have an alternative program at the state board of education meeting they said they're working with the state is working with some regional education providers because someone, you know, like South Windsor who might expel, you know, five or six students each year, they expecting them to set up their own independent program for expelled students. It's sort of you don't really have the quantities of scale and you don't want them to get Mm -hmm. the quantities of scale to have that. So having a sort of a regional provider to to offer that would be beneficial for them. Of course, uh, cost uh, is an issue, but the stakes are high. I mean, you've reported on the impact when students are suspended, expelled, chronic absenteeism. What happens to that particular student? So there's a lot of research about how students, um, what happens to students when they're expelled. It's often the prison, the school to prison pipeline. The State Department of Education last year did some research on what happens to students and chronically absent students are twice as likely to be admitted into a detention center. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that's not a groundbreaking study or, you know, it just sort of verifies that what's happening nationally to expelled students is sort of touching down in Connecticut of, you know, this is often, you know, when students are out of school, what are they going to do? You know, if they don't have, you know, a structured environment that they're expected to to be in. So um, having a alternative for when students are sent home from school instead of just sitting at home with nothing to do is sort of the game plan here. Now, in your reporting, you profiled uh, one student. His name is Nathan. He testified before uh, the state legislature's education committee. So give us an idea when we talk about before this uh, plan was in place, somebody like Nathan, what did he end up getting and how did he spend his time? So Nathan was expelled right in the middle of this change. So um, not nece- not the changes that the state board made last week, but there was a complaint that was filed against Hartford, the same group of attorneys. And so he entered new visions in Hartford where it was a couple hours a day. He testified that, you know, he was just given some homework, no real instruction. Um, you know, it wasn't really a school environment. He wanted to drop out. He testified. Um, and then he and then the complaint was you know, resolved. And the state said, you can't just do this um, in that separate complaint with Hartford. And the program turned into a full day program, instructions now being offered. And he's testified that students that he saw leave the school during his short time there when it was a short program are now coming back because they view it as a real school. 
Now, you said that some districts uh, like New Haven have really seen dramatic change in how many students are being expelled, while Bridgeport, it's gone up exponentially. What are, why, are those, uh, why are those differences there? Um, I wouldn't want to speculate about what's going on at the local level. If you talk to places like New Britain, one of my colleagues did a great story about restorative justice and sort of asking students, you know, what's wrong with you of, of when they act out of saying, what can we do to help? What happened to you? Instead of, you know, sometimes people are reacting to trauma in their life or they're reacting to some some bad home environments or different things going on in their life. And so coming from a more nurturing perspective um, in places like New Britain, their suspension and expulsion rates have really dropped over the years. Um, I don't know enough about Bridgeport if they're following restorative justice practices. Um, so I'm not sure what's going on there. So to recap, uh, these guidelines that the State Department of Education put forward, effective immediately? Effective immediately. The State Department of Education said they will be sending guidance to the every school district leader on these new standards that they are expected to follow. Always good to hear about new standards, but where's the follow-up? Is that uh, put in the plan that the, the State Department of Ed is going to see how school districts are dealing with this? So there are some next steps. Um, so if there is concern from a parent or someone's attorney that they got kicked out of school and there's no plan for them, there is a traditional complaint route that you can go with the State Department of Ed. It takes a long time to get through that route from what I've heard. Um, so there's that. You can you can do that traditional route that was always available before. Um, and now you have these standards sort of backing you up to say, here's what's expected of them. They're not following them. So that's progress on that front. Um, but then also the education commissioner said there's they're going to continue with their points of inquiry <laughs> of making sure, <laughs> sort of a wonky way of saying, like, we're going to keep track of places where it's not improving or we're hearing regular complaints of this not working. I want to thank Jacqueline Rabe Thomas, again, education reporter for the Connecticut Mirror. You can read her stories at ctmirror.org. We're going to tweet out a few of those links at where we live. Always a pleasure to talk with you, Jackie. Thanks for having me. Uh, today's show produced by senior producer Lydia Brown. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Special thanks to producer Carmen Baskoff. You can listen to WMPR.org and where we live by downloading our podcast, too. As always, thanks for listening. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel.